Let's turn to James uh, chapter 4, verse 13 to 5, verse 12. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All this boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be <coughs> condemned. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, uh, we, we love you uh, because you have spoken to us in the Bible and you have revealed yourself to us, uh, and not just in the Bible, but in Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, who you sent into this world to die for us uh, so that we can be in a perfect relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we uh, pray that you'd help us to receive that great gift, uh, and as we uh, hear from your word now and, and reflect on it, Lord, we we pray that you would help us to know how to live rightly in relationship to you as your uh, loved children in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, everybody wants to uh, live a good life. Everybody wants to live well, I think. Uh, people generally don't want to live poorly. But what does it actually mean to live well? 
what is a good life? Uh, I, a few of us um, uh, in the church have been reading through a book recently called The Good Life by uh, the, the um, Australian writer Hugh Mackay. It's not a Christian book, it's a secular book. Uh, he's an Australian sociologist and it's a fascinating book in many ways. His, uh, his argument, his main argument is that the good life is not an enjoyable life but a life lived for the good of others. It's remarkable, isn't it? Uh, a good life is not an enjoyable life, that is not a life lived for your own satisfaction, but a life lived uh, for the good of, of others. There's lots of Christian ideas actually permeating uh, that book, although he himself uh, is not a Christian. But there's lots of things I think you can say about what it means to live a good life. Uh, uh, James has really been doing that all through this entire letter that he has written to this uh, church in the first century. Uh, his whole letter is about what it means to live before God and with God and to know God. Uh, he started in chapter 1 thinking about how do we live through trials and suffering? What does that look like? Uh, then he moved on to reflecting about what it means not just to hear God, but to really listen to God, to take God's word to heart. Uh, then James talked about how faith, how trusting in God and trusting our lives to God in Jesus, how that relates to the good that we do. He, he said that the good that we do flows out of knowing Jesus. Uh, he's talked about the tongue and how destructive it can be. It's like a spark that can set on fire the whole world. Uh, and he's, he's uh, talked about uh, how our desires shape our lives uh, next week, uh, as Ollie preaches, we'll uh, see what he has to say about prayer as well. But in this section, he's really just picking up, if you like, for want of a better word, some odds and ends uh, about, I think, what it means to live for God. Uh, these are not, I don't believe, the three most important things that James wants his readers to know about, but they were three particular issues that this church was dealing with. Uh, he wants these people to know what it means to live uh, for God, knowing Jesus in, in, uh, in the situations that they find themselves. The three things which he talks about are making plans, not living for money, and being patient. It's not immediately clear how those three things connect to each other. Uh, they seem maybe a little bit uh, unrelated. But if anything connects them, I think it's this idea of living well now in the light of the future. You know, making plans for the future, uh, using our money now in the light of the future, uh, and being patient now, too, in the light of the future. So how can we live for God well now in the light of uh, the future, the future return of Christ, uh, and the future of this world as well? Well, the first issue then that James talks about is making plans. He says in 4.12, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. God wants these people to know and to understand the folly of thinking that the plans that we make are absolutely certain to come off. Uh, so the scenario is this, uh, we say to ourselves, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm totally going to go and do this tomorrow uh, or next week or next year, uh, I'm going to go to uni, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have a family, I'm going to retire at the age of 65, uh, you know, I'm going to go on a 12-month uh, holiday in Europe uh, or whatever it is. We set our plans and we say, that's what I'm going to do. But actually, God wants to remind us through James that none of us have the power to ensure that that happens. 
Uh, my shelves and cupboards are, are monuments to well-laid plans <laughs> that have never been finished. Uh, I don't know what your cupboards and shelves are like, but mine are just littered with things that I've started but never completed. Uh, projects that I, that, you know, that I bought the, the stuff for but never even started. Books. Don't talk to me about books that I've bought and have never read. Uh, something these days I'm running out of space so much that I have, to, I have to check them out before I even have a chance to read them. <laughs> it's confession time. Uh, but, it, but it's a depressing reminder, isn't it? I think our lives are often depressing reminders of our powerlessness to achieve the things that we plan. Our inability to, make, to bring about the future that we hope we can bring about. I remember when I started my PhD, I was throwing out a whole lot of stuff uh, this week for my PhD. Uh, and I remember when I started, I had all these great plans about what I would accomplish. Uh, you know, all the books that I would read, all the articles that I'd read. I spent hours hoarding books and finding articles. Uh, I, I dreamed about the languages that I would have to learn. Uh, I thought to myself, six years, that's plenty of time. Uh, but I have next to my desk, right in my eyeline, actually, when I kind of look to the side, I have next to my desk all these language grammars and dictionaries uh, for German and French and Latin and Aramaic. I recently just bought an Ugaritic uh, grammar as well, just <laughs> because I could. Uh, and and, the, and the, terrible, the tragic reality is that after seven years, I've barely scratched the surface of any of them. Uh, even now, after seven years, uh, I'm still trying to plug away at German, uh, repeating random words around my house. Vollbracht. Uh, Runzel. That's my favourite word. Uh, Flecken. Uh, and that's about as far as I've got. That's <laughs> right. Uh, the other night, in a fit of wild optimism, I, I thought to myself, I might just actually, I'm really enjoying Bonhoeffer, I might just download one of his books in German. And I spent the next hour reading about two pages, uh, yeah, and not understanding most of it. <laughs> but I think I'm not alone. <laughs> I think I'm not alone in my ambitious plans and my inability to bring them about. Because we do it, don't we? We say to ourselves, I'm going to achieve that, but actually we can't. Uh, we're told every day by our world, you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do, but actually it's complete rubbish. Uh, you can't, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's discovered that. Actually, that's what a midlife crisis is about, really, isn't it? You get to that point, I reached that age at about, I reached that about 21, but you reach that point <laughs> where you realise that you can't do all that you hoped that you would do. Uh, you're not clever enough. Uh, you're not gifted enough, you don't have enough time, uh, or you don't have enough commitment to do whatever it is. Uh, God wants us to know that we might say to ourselves, I'm going to go here and do this and do that, but actually we can't do it. We don't have the power to do that. We don't have the power within ourselves. And not only that, actually, James says, God says, there are external factors beyond our control as well. Uh, so, so he says, we're like a mist, uh, that appears for a while and vanishes. The future is so uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know uh, what is going to happen to us. 
let alone what's going to happen next week or the week after or the week after that. Uh, I remember sitting down to lunch with a friend of mine once and I wanted his advice uh, on, you know, on my future and what I was going to do with my life um, and all that kind of thing. And I think he sensed that I had uh, you know, visions of grandeur or something like that. And he said to me, well, Carl, don't worry because you could be dead in a year. I thought, oh, thanks, Peter. Uh, but he says, you could be dead in a year. Don't worry about what you're going to do in a year's time. Just worry about the good works that God is putting before you each and every day. We think of our lives as so certain and we so easily make those plans don't we, about what we're going to do and fool ourselves into thinking that we can achieve them of our own strength. But God wants to remind us that that's not necessarily so. We don't have the power in ourselves and their external factors beyond our control. Uh, and in fact, James says that to live in that way, to boast about what we're going to do, or to say what we're going to do, sorry, is boastful. As it is, verse 16, you boast in your arrogant schemes. That's what it is. It's boastful. It's arrogant. And such boasting is evil. To presume that we have the power to do all that we want is arrogant, it's presumptuous, it dishonours God. And not only that, to fail to anchor our future in God and his sovereignty is is actually sin. So verse 17, that mysterious verse 17, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. That is, if we know that we ought to anchor our lives in God's plans and we don't do it, it's a sin. It dishonours God. It ignores God. We shouldn't live like that. We're not in control of our lives. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make plans. We could end up, I think, misunderstanding James to be saying here, you know, never think beyond uh, the day that you're living. Uh, Never make any plans. But the problem is not making plans. The problem uh, is when we think and speak and live as though those plans are absolutely certain to come off. But instead of speaking and living like that, James says we ought to say something like this. Verse 15, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That is, we ought to think and speak and live with the constant realisation that the success or failure of our plans belongs to God. Uh, There was an old Latin saying, this is about the only Latin I ever learned, Deo Valente, uh, which means God willing. And so people would say, I'm hoping to do this or that, God willing. Uh, and it can be helpful, I think, to try and include something like that in the way that we speak. Uh, to try and include in the way that we speak and the things that we say a kind of acknowledgement of our limitations, our inability to, to do what we want, to achieve what we want, and God's power. Because if we don't say things like that, the impression that we give can be boastful. So we might think... We might think in our own heads, well, I know that God's in control and that I'm not. Right? We might really believe that. But if we don't actually say that, then what is the impression that people will get from us? The impression that they'll get from us is that we think that our lives are in our own power to, to work out. We'll rob God of his glory by accident. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think that we always need to phrase everything with the words God willing, but somewhere in what you say, there should be that kind of acknowledgement, some kind of recognition that your plans and your hopes belong to God. So you might say something like, well, I'm hoping to start a business or I'm hoping to grow the business that I've got. Uh, I'm making plans for that. I want to do this and I want to do that. But I know that you know, none of this might work. God might have other plans for me and that's okay. Like I'm, I'm cool with that because God's smarter than I am. 
Uh, or, uh, so we need to include that, I think, in, in, uh, in the way, the things that we say. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to realise that just saying that, just saying God willing, is not really enough either. So we can say it, you know, you, could, you can say all the time, um, I'm going to do this God willing, or I'm going to do that God willing, but, but actually you might just be saying it so that other people think that you're really, you know, godly. Oh, look at that, he's really, he's really handing his plans over to God. But you're not actually doing that. You're just, you're just attaching that to your sentence to make yourself seem godly. Or you might say it because you're trying to fool God into thinking uh, that you're actually laying your plans in his hands. When you're not really, you're just kind of holding on to them uh, really tightly and not giving them to him. Uh, like with last week, uh, for those who were here, the great test of where we're at with God is whether we hold our plans with open hands. That is, whether we pray to God and we say, God, this is what I want to do, but you're heaps smarter than me, so if it's not a good idea, or if you're calling me to go in another direction, then please help me to receive that with joy. Help, help me to do what you want me to do in the way that you want me to do it, in the place uh, where you want me to be. Uh, we need to hold our plans with, with open hands. It sounds so simple, I think, but actually it's incredibly difficult, isn't it? It's so hard to, to, to let go of the plans that we have for our lives. Why is it hard? It's hard because we want to hold on to our lives and to give our plans over to God is, in some sense, to die, isn't it? It's to die, it's to say, this is what I really, really want to do, but actually God might have another idea. That's, a, that's a, like a small death, isn't it? <laughs> to say, actually, God's, God might have other ideas for me. Uh, Bonhoeffer, again, this is from the English version. Uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's a great quote, isn't it? I was reminded again of that this week. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is, he calls us to give up ourselves and to follow Jesus. That's what following is about, isn't it? Uh, it means to make our plans, our desires, our wants, our hopes subservient to God's, to Jesus's. And that's costly and it's painful, but actually, you know what? It's always good. It's always better because God's plans for our lives are always better than our own plans for our own lives. Uh, and for those who might be tempted, our plans, God's plans for other people are always better than our plans for other people's lives as well. I don't know what you're planning at the moment, but it's worth stopping to ask the question, uh, you know, whatever the plan is, whether it's for this month or for next year or for the next 10 years, whether it's for your family or your career uh, or for your business or for your long-awaited holiday, whatever, the, the, whatever your plan is, it's important to stop and say to God... Lord, this is my plan. This is what I want to do. It's okay to have a hope. <laughs> Lord, this is what I want to do, but I trust you. My plans are in your hands. Help me to let go of this if you want me to do that. Help me to go another direction. Help me to follow Jesus. It's a hard thing to do, but it's stupid. It's profoundly stupid to try and fight against what God wants to do with us. So James addresses making plans. He wants us to plan our lives under God uh, and in a way that honours God. Next, James moves on to an issue that seems quite unrelated, uh, frankly, 
which is the rich oppressing the poor. But as I said, there's this issue of living now in the light of the future. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's not uh, immediately clear whether the people that James is talking about here are in the church or outside the church. Uh, That is... The wealthy people, these wealthy people could be Christians who are part of the church or they could be the people who are referred to back in chapter 2 who seem to be from outside the church who are oppressing the Christians within the church. In some ways it actually doesn't really matter that much. In fact, I'm not sure that it matters at all. Uh, But the fundamental point either way remains the same. That is, these verses, what these verses do is show us the heart of God with respect to how we think about money and wealth and justice. And it's certainly true uh, that you can find people who are greedy and, and uh, unjust both within the church and outside the church. So whoever these rich people are, uh, these words are still relevant to us. Uh, and whoever they are, James accuses them of two different things. The first is they're hoarding wealth. They're stockpiling their wealth, their money. Uh, it's, a, it's a waste of time, James says, because all of it will come to nothing. It will rot Moths will eat it, their money will corrode, uh, it'll, it'll disappear. I was reading a book uh, this week and the author was reflecting on how he, when he was young he would go to church and they would talk about, uh, the, the pastor would talk about how we sh- you know, shouldn't store up treasure on earth uh, but you know, store up treasure in heaven and then everyone would walk outside into the car park and admire each other's new cars. Uh, you know, and, and, and kind of be envious of what other people said. But then he asked what I thought was a really perceptive question. He said, where are they now? All those shiny new Ford Zephyrs, Morris Miners, Austin A40s, Volkswagens, Holden Specials, and Standard Vanguards. I don't even know what that is. Or even that one memorable Mercedes-Benz. Where, where are they now? Rusted out wrecks, no doubt corrupted by moss, or possibly recycled as refrigerators and washing machines. It's so true, isn't it? Check out my new car. Nobody even remembers what a Ford Zephyr is. Well, some people do. (laughs) But where are they now? They're, 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 They're on the scrap heap, right? They've been ditched, they've been dumped. What happens to all those things that we treasure? What happens is that they perish. They come to nothing. But actually, the situation that James highlights is worse than that. If they just perish, that would be bad enough. But James says that they don't simply perish, but they testify against us at the last day. He says they will will testify against you and they'll eat your flesh like fire. Wow. That is your possessions. He's saying your possessions will send you to hell. Why is that? Because they will testify that you didn't love God, but you loved stuff. It's a sobering idea, I think, isn't it? 
that our possessions can send us to hell. Not because that ultimately is what sends us to hell. What sends us to hell is not knowing Jesus, right? But they will be the witnesses on the last day that said, you know what? You didn't know Jesus. You didn't love him. What you loved and what you knew was all that stuff that you treasured up. All those cars that you bought, all those you know, things for the house. Uh, they will testify against you. That's what you loved. It's a sobering idea and, and, and we need to ask ourselves, I think, a serious question. And the serious question that we need to ask ourselves is this. What are my possessions saying about me? Uh, if Jesus was to walk through your house today or through your life, what message would he hear? Would your possession say, this person loves God? Or would they say, this person loves themselves? That's a great question to think about, isn't it? It's not just a great question, it's an important question. And I would even say, don't leave here this morning without answering that question. What do your possessions say about where you, what you love? And if you're not sure what they say, then don't assume that they say something good. Oh, well, I'm not sure, but I think, I th- I think it's a pretty good message. The stakes are too high. James says, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. That is like in chapter 4, like last week. Repent, grieve over your love of money and turn back to God. Seek Jesus, seek the forgiveness and the new life that is in him. But not only are these people hoarding wealth, James says they're also getting rich through oppressing their workers. They haven't paid their workers a fair wage. While they've been getting fat uh, and, and indulging themselves, they've actually been treading on top of others. And again, these injustices will have eternal consequences. The cries against their injustice have reached God's ears, James says. They've lived in a day of slaughter. That is, their indulgence has led to the suffering and even the death of the people that they employ. Now, it might be that there are some people uh, here today who have structured their business or their work or their life uh, to oppress people under their authority. Uh, You might be cheating your workers in how much you pay them. You might be cheating your workers in the hours that you make them work. Uh, It's important to say, I think, James is not talking about doing that by accident. You know, I think sometimes... You know, that can happen by accident, that needs to be set right. But what he's talking about, more particularly, is deliberately setting our sights uh, on, uh, deliberately setting out, I should say, to cheat people to get more for yourself. He's talking about deliberate and systematic injustice. If you're doing that, God says, don't expect anything less than his judgment. And yet I suspect that for many of us, You know, many of us don't run our own businesses. Uh, Some of us do, but many of us don't. What are other ways that we might oppress people who work for us? Uh, What about, for instance, that vexed question uh, of the people who, in, in other countries who are paid almost nothing to, uh, you know, produce the clothes, for instance, that we can buy at bargain prices? What do we make of that? How does that fit with what James is saying? I think that's actually a more complex question than we might think, uh, actually. For starters, we need to recognise, I think, that those people are not in our employment. So although what we're willing to pay has an impact 
on their working conditions, the fundamental fault lies not with uh, fundamental fault lies with their employers, right? With the people who are in charge of them, not with the customers uh, in another country. Uh, that is, most of us in buying the things that are available to us in the shops are not setting out with the deliberate scheme. Uh, we're not structuring our lives in order to oppress people. It's, it's a quite a different thing, I think. Uh, beyond that, we don't have direct control over their employment conditions. We can't go into the store and say, uh, I'd like to pay twice the price for that so that the person in that country gets a better wage. There are just actually really fundamental limits to what power that we have in that situation. Uh, I don't think we can just take what James is saying about oppressing workers and apply it to anyone who buys something from a, com a company which is oppressing their workers. James is not targeting here the people who are trading with these employers, but he's targeting the employers themselves. And yet, and yet, that said, I think it's also clear from what James says that we can't just shrug off injustice. Uh, it would be impossible for us to try and restrict our purchases only to companies that are absolutely ethical. After all, what company is absolutely ethical and where do you set the line for that? Where do you, how do you evaluate that? It's a, uh, quite a difficult thing. We need to live in a world that rejects God and rejects God's plan and purpose for the world. We need to trade with people. It's, it's unavoidable that we will end up trading with people who are unethical. That's partly what... Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about buying meat from the market that might have been sacrificed to other gods, right? It's, you know, we, we have to live in a world where people have different priorities, and, and at some point we have to go, well, I, I can't rate, not everything can be a matter of conscience. There's a limit. We have to live in a world that rejects God. But we can still be thoughtful and deliberate about trying to see injustice ended. We can be thoughtful about how we spend our money. Uh, we can choose to not make price the most important factor for whether we buy something. We can choose to be mindful of how companies treat their workers. And we can stand up in different ways for the rights of foreign workers politically and in other ways. There are lots of ways that those kinds of things can be done, and Christians do things like that all the time. Many of us do things like that all the time. Uh, I belong to a superannuation fund whose main objective is not simply to make money for its members, but whose main objective is actually to do that in a way which honours God and which is ethical. So they choose to invest in things which are ethical and not to invest in things which are unethical. The point is not simply don't subject your workers to injustice. James's point really is this. If you care more about money than about people, you probably don't know Jesus. Because Jesus is a guy who cares about justice. So if justice features nowhere in your life, then there's probably a deep problem. But again, the solution uh, is the same as hoarding up wealth. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. That is, grieve over your injustice. Don't deny it. Admit it to God. Seek Jesus and your injustice because there is hope for forgiveness. The whole point of this warning is that people might actually turn from their ways and, and know and love Jesus. But please also realise that there's no escape from the judgement of God if you don't give up loving money and injustice. That is, you, if you're hanging on to the world, there's no space left in your hands to receive God's gift of grace in Jesus. 
you hang on to the world, if your hands are full of the world, there's no space left to receive God's gift of grace. So James wants us to know how to live in the light of the future, how to make plans, uh, how to live now with our money in the light of God's judgment to come. Uh, Finally, he urges us to, to live with patience in the midst of suffering. He says in verse 7, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. James urges these Christians to be patient, uh, but he's not talking actually about patience in general. We might read it and think, well, he just wants us to be generally patient people, which I'm sure is not untrue, but that's not his kind of key point. He's talking about patience in particular with respect to God's judgment. His encouragement to be patient flows on from what he's just been saying about the rich who are oppressing the poor. That is, there are Christians in this church who are suffering at the hands of the poor. That was clear back in chapter 2. That's why lots of people think that the rich people that James is talking about are outside the church. What they're saying is James' words about judgment for the rich are not first and foremost a rebuke to the church, but they're an encouragement to the Christians who are in the church and who are suffering at their hands. That is, James is saying to them, you're suffering, these people are extorting you, they're they're living off, off your misery. But don't worry, the day of justice will come. And now he's saying, And be patient while you wait for that. Don't worry, your suffering and your injustice that you have experienced won't be forgotten by God, but a day of reckoning will come for those who have oppressed you. But in the meantime, James says, be patient, stand firm, don't grumble, don't complain about those who are oppressing you. Not in the sense of, you know, don't raise it as an issue, but don't slander them and don't keep slandering them because that's not going to do any good. Instead, wait, because Jesus is coming again in justice. In other words, for these Christians, the day of judgment is a consolation. For these Christians, the day of judgment, the idea of God's justice coming and justice being done and justice being seen to be done is a consolation. They don't have to take justice into their own hands now. They don't even need to grumble and complain. They shouldn't do that. They shouldn't even try and take justice into their hands in that way. But they should trust that one day God will bring justice himself. And I think that's a lesson that we need to desperately learn and to learn, I think, quite quickly. Uh, As I've reflected on what has happened in uh, politics and in the society Uh, in the last five years, I think as we find ourselves increasingly marginalised as Christians, and not even just marginalised, but actually demonised for the views that we hold, particularly on sexuality and gender, for instance, the temptation for us will be not to wait patiently, but to take things into our own hands. The temptation for us will be to grumble uh, and to complain and to fight back. In fact, there was an article, uh, there's a reference to uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who is, she was formerly the head of lesbian women's studies, actually, before she was, and she was a a lesbian, she became a Christian, she obviously resigned her position, but um, she said, 
her comment about the US was that since the gay marriage uh, legislation was was passed or you know put through by the High Court or the Supreme Court in the US, actually the vitriol and the abuse on both sides has increased. So everyone said, you know, once it goes through, it will all be better. But actually, the vitriol on both sides has increased. And the side, you know, the other side that she's talking about is Christians. That's terrible, isn't it? That's just appalling. Uh, And we have to make sure that that's not where we go. And in order to do that, we have to have the kind of the mindset that James is talking about here. Uh, That is, we need to be patient. Uh, Many of us spend our days grumbling about what's going on around us, about the situation of the world, rather than rejoicing that we've been considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. I read an article in the paper this week, uh, you know, someone getting upset about a Christian school, and I thought to myself, it's just so unfair, isn't it? It's so unjust. And I had to stop myself, and I thought, no, I should pray. Lord, thank you that they've been considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's a hard thing to pray, isn't it? But that's what we need to pray and that's how we need to learn to think. We need to learn to be patient, to wait for God's justice, for God's time, because actually in God's mercy, he might mean for some of those people who oppose us to find grace, the same grace that we found. And if we're impatient and abusive and rude... We might keep those people from receiving the grace of God. How unhelpful would it be for us to take justice into our own hands and so prevent others receiving God's mercy? Don't take revenge, says Jesus, but leave room for God's wrath. Which sounds so unbelievably simple, doesn't it? But actually it's incredibly hard. James says we need to be like the farmer. What does the farmer do? Uh, He waits for the land to yield its crop. He sows the seed and then it takes ages before anything even comes out of the soil, uh, if you're lucky. And then once the first shoot comes through, you've got to wait forever for it to grow into something more substantial and to grow to a point where you can actually use it or pick it. We want instant results, instant justice, instant solutions, instant fixes, but God actually makes us wait. And it's not just us. Believers through the centuries have had to wait. James says in verse 10, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He says, look at the prophets. Look what happened to them. They endured all kinds of things. Most of them endured horrendous opposition from the very people that God had sent them to. Jeremiah was thrown in a cistern. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were thrown into a furnace. But the particular example that James focuses on is Job. You know, Daniel and Shadrach and all those guys, they were in in the lion's den and in the furnace in and out within a day. That's not not too bad, I guess. You know, like, you're going to have your pick. I reckon that'd be Okay. But think about Job, right? Job's, Job's misery went on forever. And think about what he lost. He lost his, he lost his kids, he lost his, uh, everything he owned, he lost his health. And it dragged on and on and on and on and on. But James says, 
Look at his example of patience. He had to wait and trust God. And we have to be patient and we have to wait as well. And it will be so hard. It takes so much patience to sit there and to endure injustice at the hands of other people. It takes great patience to see people denigrating God, to see them denigrating the God who made them, the God who sent his own son to redeem them, the God who loves them and gives them every breath that they breathe, to see them denigrating that God and dragging his name through the mud. I was so, yeah, I was so saddened this week to see one of our politicians use the words from the Bible to celebrate the gay marriage legislation. I thought to myself, what a travesty. It takes great patience, doesn't it? Wait, be patient, God says, trust me, justice will be done, and it will be seen to be done. How do we live for God this side of Jesus' return? James gives us three things to think about. Making plans and holding them loosely under God's hand. Not hoarding up treasure that will perish but being rich toward God. And being patient while we wait for God's justice and mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, you are sovereign over the whole world. And we want to acknowledge that. You are sovereign over our lives and over the lives of others. And Lord, we want to put our lives in your hands again. Uh, That we want to come to Jesus and surrender ourselves and all that we are and all that we have to your will and purpose for us. Lord, we live in a world which is so confused, so broken a world which dishonours you uh, and rejects you, Lord. And, uh, Father, we're beginning to learn here in Australia the difficulties that many of our brothers and sisters have faced for generations in many places around the world. Uh, Lord, help us to learn the lessons that we need to learn to live wisely in these days uh, in which you have deigned for us to live. Lord, help us to be patient to wait and to trust you, to trust that you're uh, full of justice, that justice will be done, but also that you're rich in mercy and full of compassion and desire that no one would perish, but that all might come to repentance. And Lord, we ask that you might do that in these days in which we live. Lord, as we do that, help us to have our priorities set rightly Help us not to live for this world, but to live for you. And help us to make our plans wisely, diligently, but also with open hands, giving to you uh, the things that are on our hearts uh, and the things for which we hope. And trusting that your plans are always better for us than our own. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.